we were coming out of a tasting. Now, Booker always signed bottles after the tasting. And we were leaving the tasting, and his pants fell down. <laughs> and he stood there, and he said, Kathleen, pull my pants up. This is Bourbon Pursuit, the official podcast of bourbon, bringing to you the best in news, reviews, and interviews with people making the bourbon industry happen. And I'm one of your hosts, Kenny Coleman. So welcome back to part two of my interview with Kathleen Di Benedetto. In part one, Kathleen shared some of her greatest memories when she worked alongside Booker and learned the business inside and out from him. And in part two, Kathleen shares about her own successes in the industry, from going on the road and now leading the bourbon tastings by herself and to eventually have her own batch of bookers named after her. Kathleen oversaw the brands of bookers, bakers, and Knob Creek for many years. And we talk about the marketing strategies and how those changed once you enter the digital revolution. With that, cheers, everybody. And now here's Fred Minnick with Above the Char. I'm Fred Minnick, and this is Above the Char. This week's idea comes from Jim Kelly, who writes me on fredminnick.com. That's fredminnick.com. I drink a lot of my bourbon outside and often while walking. As a result, I use a Yeti highball as my go-to vessel of choice. Am I impacting the bourbon flavor with the stainless steel makeup of the Yeti compared to a glass? Hmm. Note that nothing else touches this Yeti. It's only used for bourbon and an occasional rye. Enjoy your shows. Cheers. Well, Jim, uh, that's a great question. One that um, I have touched on before about the quality of uh, steel used in and flasks. So inferior steel can often have like uh, repercussions on the whiskey. And when you pour, when you leave it in there for a long period of time, like I left a, a whiskey in a cheap flask for a long period of time and it turned green, literally turned green. So Yeti is not cheap, right? A Yeti is like the creme de la creme of outdoors, outdoors vessels of consuming things. In fact, I, I would say Yeti, Yeti has a, as crazy as a fan base as there is when it comes to uh, any product out there. So Yeti is definitely not going to have an inferior steel quality. You know, honestly, though, it's not going to change the taste of whiskey, but tasting whiskey is only one portion of the, the four-part process of tasting, you are taking out a lot of elements by walking. You know, you're not going through the uh, the ritual of, of looking at it. You're probably changing up your smelling. Usually when we drink whiskey, we're sitting or we're mingling. If you are out walking, you're breaking up the normal, usual ways that, that we drink it. So I would say your activity has as much as an impact on on how you taste it as anything. But if it, if you just want to compare taste, you know, there should be no difference. The steel might get a little colder, you know, if it's outside and it's cold, you know, you might feel a little residual effect on your lips from the coldness of the of the cup. But uh, uh for the most part, I, I kind of um I kind of like what you're doing because you're getting steps in, getting in a little exercising. Well, while enjoying a dram, I might I might try that myself. Although I can't see myself uh, doing any reviews on this, I, I think that could be the, your style of tasting 
could be a nice exploratory adventure for me. So I might give that a shot there, Jim. I uh, appreciate you writing in. If you want to be like Jim, hit me up on uh, fredminnick.com. That's fredminnick.com. Hit that contact button and send me your idea. If I like yours like I like Jim's, I'll read it on the air. Until next week, cheers. Ed Bly and Rising Tide Spirits are back again with a new release of Old Stubborn Bourbon. And this release of Old Stubborn is a premium hand marriage of 10, 11, and 12-year cask drink, barely filtered pot still bourbon. It comes in at a staggering 123.8 proof. And the flavoring grain for this one, which the last one was weeded, but this time it's now rye. Rich, sweet, and bold with a long finish that's sure to be another eye-opener. You can order online at Sealbox or TheBourbonConcierge.com, and you can even purchase in person at Revival Vintage Spirits, and even now with very few select stores in Kentucky. You can get it now while you can, but be sure to do it because it's not going to last long. Do you ever pour yourself a bourbon, swirl it around, and then start struggling to come up with tasting notes? And perhaps you're also looking for a good Father's Day gift idea. Well, you can now solve both with a kit from Nose Your Bourbon. And unlike other nosing kits on the market, Nose Your Bourbon kits feature real ingredients for the most authentic aromas. You can smell real Tahitian vanilla bean instead of some synthetic aroma that's just made from chemicals. So head on over to NoseYourBourbon.com and enter code BP10 for 10% off your order. And they're off for another Gift 270 2020 Unicorn Raffle. Your $20 ticket gives you not one, but two chances to win from our lineup of 20 Woodford Reserve treasures, including the grand prize, the rarest unicorn yet, the Woodford Reserve Kentucky Derby 150 Baccarat Edition. Only 150 bottles were made and is just like the one the Derby winning owner receives. Quit horsing around and get your $20 tickets now at Give270.org. Charitable Gaming License ORG 0002703. From their bar to yours, Chad and Sarah of the popular YouTube channel It's Bourbon Night bring you their favorite at-home old-fashioned mix with the new Elemental Elixir's Golden Hour Syrup. It's a custom-made syrup with notes of bold black tea, warm spices, and orange zest. All you need is your favorite whiskey and ice. No bitters needed. One bottle makes 16 drinks, so that's only $1 cocktail before you add your own whiskey. They can also be enjoyed in other cocktails or spirits, mocktails, coffee, tea, and anything you can think of. It's crafted locally in Lexington, Kentucky, and you can get your bottle now at whiskeyambitions.com. I guess I, I want to kind of talk about the, the batches as well. So yeah, it, it, I guess also kind of guide me as, as part of your, your career here too. So we're in the 90s, you're helping promote a lot of the small batch bourbons, um, were you also there when Booker's was introducing the different batch numbers and the all the, the kind of ways yeah. that you can label it and stuff like that too? Yeah. I was on the small batch bourbons and super premium brands. My my remit extended to, they actually included a vodka in my portfolio, uh, a scotch, a tequila, two tequilas, Chinaco Al Tesoro, a scotch, Dalmore, if you remember the Dalmore. Mm-hmm. And, um, a Canadian whiskey called Tangle Ridge, and these were called small brands or seed brands. I worked on that business for 14 years until the day Booker died. The day he died, I was moved off that business and I was moved into an integration role. Our sales force was starting to sell absolute, and so we had split our sales from our marketing. And so I was working in an integration role to bring 
the the sales force who is now selling Absolute and our portfolio, along with our sales team, our marketing team from Beam Jim Beam, to bring that all together. So I moved into that role. And shortly after that, I went into brand education. And so I ran the education for brands like De Kuyper, um, which has a fascinating history, Lafroig, Maker's Mark, uh, Cavoisier, Crucian Rum. So I took the knowledge that I learned with Booker and I learned the other categories as well. And that's how I got into Keepers of the Quay. That's how I got into knowledge of, of Scotch. So about the time, I think it was the late 2000s, when I was also leading the ambassador team. And these ambassadors would go around the United States and help drive advocacy for our brands. And Adam Harris was a person who worked on this small batch bourbons and Jim Beam. And he came up with this concept of creating batches and naming those batches. Uh, the brand team loved it. And we went from there. Fred loved it. Fred loved the way that it could honor people. It could honor situations, whether it's the uh, oven buster batch. Uh, his mother used to forever baste with bookers and blow the oven door open. Probably if you've had Fred on here, you'd know he'd tell that story. That's why we have an explicit rating. <laughs> That's right. And then, um, so Adam did that. And that was late 2000s, probably you know, 2010 and about and on. So um, it's been a journey. I continue to work together with all of the brands, but move to the on-premise and run the on-premise business with a team of about 80 people. And that's when I was inducted into the Bourbon Hall of Fame in 2015, when I was running that business. So a super amazing experience. Well, I want to kind of unpack two of those things there real quick. So yeah. uh, first, I want you to kind of talk about whether it was the phone call or the email that says, hey, Kathleen, we'd love to have you come down to Kentucky and select your own batch of bookers. Like, kind of talk about that. Oh, my gosh. Well, it was, it was really interesting. Um, that was after the Hall of Fame. That was 2018. And I received a call from Fred in November. And he's like, um, hey, Kathleen. And I'm like, yeah. And he said, uh, how'd you like a batch of bookers just for you? And I'm like, ha, 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 It's a joke, you know. And he's like, no, no, I'm serious. I'm serious. We'll work with you. We'll select. You can together with me, we will select a batch. And I'm like, are you kidding me? I lost my mind. It was the most extraordinary experience of our lives, of my life. It was in November that we got together. No, it was December that we selected the batch. They let me design my little label that, for Kathleen's batch, which I put hills and valleys in that. And those are the knobs of Kentucky because, of course, Knob Creek was the brand that took off when I was working on it. And so I always think about knobs when I think of my my career and then the valleys because everybody has hills and valleys in their career and of my 30 years at beam the majority have been amazing there have been times that are not amazing like everyone's career and for me it always reminds me that life is a journey and it is one that takes many different paths that you could never have imagined and here is this kid from the northwest side of chicago who has a brand with her name on it. I, 
that's bourbon and I'm not, you know, a, a child of the revolution or, you know, daughter of the revolution. I am an immigrant. I'm a child of an immigrant. So it was an extraordinary experience. And I can't put into words what it meant to me from a, from a personal perspective and what it meant to my family and my, my kids. My son now sells for Southern Glaciers, but he sells a Bacardi portfolio. Did he understand the, uh, the depth of it at the time when he had a bottle with your name on it? And you're, he's like, okay, so what's the point? I mean, yeah, did he, he, did he grasp it? So he sure did f- discover <laughs> that. <laughs> yeah, give him some barrel-proof whiskey in college, of course. Yeah, no, I mean, Dom lived his very best life in 2018 in, in his senior year of college. My younger one was in high school and, and he's like, yeah, whatever. You know, the most they're drinking is flavored vodka and they shouldn't be. Oh my God, I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> but my point is this, it was an extraordinary experience and being in store and signing bottles and being with Fred, you know, Fred and I did several events together around this and he is like a brother to me. I grew up with him. He would laugh at me while I sat at the table and cried when his father was you know, testing me because Fred had already been through that with him. He's like, <laughs> now it's your turn. <laughs> and um, I watched little Fred grow up. I mean, I've been to Bourbon Fest since they started. Dominic, who is my 25-year-old, came to the first Bourbon Fest when he was six months old. Christian, my second child, was at every Bourbon Festival. This is, I've only missed two Bourbon, fe- three Bourbon Festivals. One, uh, September 11th. That was the first bourbon festival I missed. The next was when I went to Japan because, hey, you have a chance to go see Suntory. I'm going to go do it. Yeah. And the third was this year because of COVID. Oh, last year they canceled it, but this year. So I feel like I've grown up with that family. They are so special to me. Now it's no, it's not like a job anymore. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's more than that. These people are my family. Sandy, Fred. Little Fred, Kay, Little Book, Braley, all of them are, are very, very special to me. And they have made my life so much richer by being part of it. I could never have imagined this. This isn't something you think about when you're young. I, I did say when I was young, yeah, I don't want to lead a life of mediocrity. But I would never have thought that it would come in the form of a distilled spirit or the Bourbon Hall of Fame or you know, being at a castle, being inducted into the Keepers of the Quay. And, you know, Big Fred went with me to that event. Uh, He happened to be touring um, the UK the week that I was being inducted. And he came as as my my date for the the event. And there was a militia that had the red carpet. I mean, you felt like you were in Bridgerton, for God's sake, coming in and all of our finery and we had haggis and we stood on tables and we sang and it was an extraordinary experience that I can't, I, I told him that night, I don't want to go to bed because I don't want this to be over. The same way when the Bourbon Hall of Fame event happened, I didn't want it to be over. I wanted it to last forever. And being out in the field selling my batch, I wanted it to last forever. And I have six cases up in my son's bedroom now that he's moved out because like I'm like hoarding them so that when I'm older I can look back and you know retired I can say oh look at that I 
can drink that now. You know? That was it. That's my trophy. <laughs> oh, my God. It's like, you know, you, yeah, it is. It's a trophy. So we can tell that you've got a an amazing relationship with the the nose and that family. And yeah. it really is like you've you've been inducted as, as part of their family with your own your own bourbon batch named after you yeah. and stuff like that. I do want to rewind a little bit because sure. there was there was something that you had mentioned before we actually started discussing and we were talking to some of the PR people about like, oh, what are the things that Kathleen can talk about? And this was how you were building bourbon through sort of word of mouth, like how you were building influencers yeah. before there were today's influencers. Talk about what what that looked like and in, in sort of the the media or should I say media tactics, but your your sort of marketing tactics behind it. We we did some interesting things. What we did do at the very beginning is we took out small fractional ads on the second page, lower right hand corner of the Wall Street Journal. And we had messages about each of the small batch bourbons to entice people to get them interested. At the time, like today's consumer is a growing female audience as well as a, a strong male audience of bourbon drinkers. But back in the 90s, you know, whiskey really was a, a guy thing. And so the Wall Street Journal, which is heavily male skewed, started to drive the awareness we needed so that when we went into market with um, our partner Hyatt, who shared some of their their lists of people, we would be able to start to market to these folks and, and do tastings with them. What we then would do at the tastings is we would have telefriend promotions where we would send you something and your friend something, whether it's just a card that says you're a, an ambassador for, for bourbon or it's uh, a koozie, something along those lines, to get people to want to share and talk about our bourbons. We ended up creating something called the Kentucky Bourbon Circle. And the Kentucky Bourbon Circle was a four times a year quarterly publication that was not branded by us. Um, it didn't say Jim Beam. It simply was all about for bourbon connoisseurs. And it would have profiles on each of the brands. It would have an article from Booker on how to smoke your whiskey or how to how to um, smoke pork because he loved pork. All those um, nose. They love, they love everything barbecue. Oh, my God. Yeah, you're not wrong. You're not wrong. And they love fishing. Booker loved, crazy loved fishing. He would fish in the, in the water retention ponds across from um, the distillery right by the um, – Oh, it's it's yeah, I was like, I'm not sure if I can botanical pick it in my head either. gardens oh, okay. across the street. I forgot the name of them. But yeah, so Booker we would write articles about his fishing and his favorite fishing holes and stories about when he would go out fishing, Annis would say, Well, how long are you gonna be gone? And he he'd say, Well, about a one seven five. So <laughs> you know what that means, you know, it's the size of the of the bottle. So how long it's going to take to sip a 175. He would never drink a 175, but the, the, the joke was, is that that was what he'd say to just say, I'm going to be out a long time. That's your, that's your currency or that's your, your time. Sort <laughs> yeah, of. That's your time. That's how you yeah. judge all time. That's funny. Um, but that's how we, we started to build those stories because that those stories become social currency. And the more they don't have to do with whiskey is even better because then you're creating a personal relationship with not only the family, but the spirit itself. 
when you talk about Booker, when you talk about Fred and, and their stories, it gives dimension to the context of that whiskey. It allows you to believe that Booker has the seven gener or six generations of expertise to create whiskey as it was intended to be at the turn of the century. One of the things that Booker used to do, which was we also put in our in the uh, Kentucky Bourbon Circle, is um, he would have these parties in his backyard. And he would invite people over, whether it was the Blue Knights, which is a police motorcycle group, or it was just consumers or it could be salespeople. And he would always have his folk band. And Booker played the jug. We had somebody with a washboard, and I could send you pictures of this. I have a picture of Booker playing the jug, which was just the most extraordinary experience. You had a washboard with spoons, and then you had the bang-bang stick. The bang-bang stick had symbols on the top that would close every time you hit it. It was truly like walking back in time. And so sharing these ideas, sharing the recipes of Mamaw Beam and sharing his stories of where he fishes and how he fishes and what he uses his bait was actually the color that people needed to, to believe in something larger than the brand itself. And, and I, do, I truly believe um, that helped to establish Booker's bourbon and allow it to have that $50 price point and not have to be discounted. Um, the, it allowed Knob Creek to be seen as whiskey the way it used to be. And for that bold taste to be accepted, because remember, in the 90s, there were no really intense tasting whiskeys. That is the way whiskey used to be. At the time, Maker's Mark was growing because it was lighter. And here we were bucking that trend. And it took that history for people to believe that they were tasting part of what is the American experience. So um, I, I do think that that has helped us. Um, did we identify single people as influencers? Yeah, probably. People like Paul Packle, people like Gary Regan, Dale DeGroff. They all had friendships and had relationships with Booker. But it was because they liked him as a person. They like Fred as a person. They, they are treated with the respect that they deserve. And while not every distiller, but some distillers tend to believe their press, Booker just believed in sharing the love of what he enjoyed doing the most. And that was making whiskey. From an actual like marketing side of things here. Yeah. When you think of a campaign like that, typically today we try to figure out like, how do we, how do we measure that? And today we measure it through click through rates and views. And so back then when you had a marketing campaign like that, how did you, how did you define success? We define success literally based on if people showed up to our tastings. <laughs> okay, that's easy, because right? Other butts those, in the seats, yeah. We, yeah, we did not have uh, social media to rely on. Facebook didn't exist yet. And honestly, we knew we had 80,000 members as part of this Kentucky bourbon circle. And we would provide offers, whether, you know, at the time cigars were big. So we'd offer cigar offers. And we would get a lot of play on that. We'd get a lot of play on the... Uh, tell a friend campaign. But most importantly, if you can fill a room in each of your top markets, then we knew we were, our content was resonating. 
it wasn't very an exotic way to look at it, but we also didn't have a tremendous amount of money for research to say, oh, is this, you know, Booker didn't necessarily believe in research. He believed be who you are, say who you are, and people will come to you. A real field of dreams kind of scenario there, huh? Yeah. Well, honestly, it it's true. And people often asked me, well, how much research did you do on that packaging before you introduced it or on that ad campaign? I'm like, well, we, we never did any research. We ran full page ads of Booker's in uh, the Wall Street Journal, which was filled with crazy amounts of copy, but it was about the experience. He had one ad that was, if you think fishing takes patience, you've never made whiskey. And then there was one, it came out early 90s when there was a financial crisis hit, I think in the early 90s. And it was a, a picture of Booker and it said, I may be the only one who's happy with what he made this year. So I, I can, I'm going to send you all of these images so you can see them. I mean, it's, it's really cool because these sound like, because everybody kind of knows that Maker's Mark is definitely one of those, you know, working with Doe Anderson, they have some of the, the yeah. best marketing campaigns that are out there, whether on right. billboards or bus signs or magazine advertisements. It almost seemed like this was some of those original sort of concepts. And it, and it wasn't just about the whiskey, it was about the person. Yeah, it was, it was. And, um... You know, you asked the question earlier about Knob Creek and the price, you know, the pricing and how do we get people to trade up? And we actually created a campaign with a bourbon background with just the bottle. And we took parts of each word, because if you remember that the old label had the newsprint behind it. Do you remember that? Yeah, a little bit. Um, I don't think I have. Well, you can kind of see it here, but whatever, I'll send it to you. We pulled words out of there that allow people to believe that this was worth it. So we were able to find the three letters dues, D-U-E-S. And then we pulled that out and says, when you're done paying them, look us up. So it was about, about elevating the package as if, you know, this is something you needed to earn. And, and that campaign worked very hard for us. It was very 90s. So we eventually moved away from it because there's only so much you can stare at a bright orange background. But it established what we needed it to do, and it catapulted Knob Creek to one of the fastest growing super premium whiskeys out there. And, and it was the fastest growing. Basil Hayden is now coming up behind it, which is really wonderful. I'm happy to see Basil Hayden growing, and I can only hope that Baker's finally gets its due in the coming years, that people see the beauty of that spirit. I think now they're starting to roll out single barrel programs for bakers as well. So I you're know. starting to see a few of those start hitting. So I think I think the brand has got a really bright future on it as well. And with the repackaging design that was done a few years ago, yeah. you know, it kind of took it from this sort of dark label, dark black wax, dark liquid yeah. into something that's a little bit more brighter has a little bit more modern feel to it. So yeah, I could I definitely can see where that's where that's trending. And I still think it's staying within the ethos of what Booker wanted, which was not too much boasting. You know, it's um the package isn't overly fancy. That is just not ever what he would want on his brands. In as much as I may have loved that bottle of Blanton's, it was not a reality. It would never have happened. It just is not the ethos or the values of that family. 
So, and, and I appreciate that. I appreciate that. I got another question for you. Let's see if we yeah. can sort of stir up a memory here. So <laughs> when you were on the road and doing all these tastings early on, you know, having 200 people in the room. Yeah. And you had just said, you just said, you know, something that never happened. Is there a, a moment that you can remember that you thought, I can't believe that just happened? Whether it was somebody in the audience that did something, whether Booker said something. If you're anything like me, then you can't get enough about bourbon. And that's why I'm a subscriber to Bourbon Plus magazine. Bourbon Plus is a quarterly publication that tells the stories from the heart of bourbon. The farmers who grow the grain, the distillers who labor over the process, and the people like you and me who raise their glasses to celebrate it all. Subscribe to Bourbon Plus magazine today at bourbonplus.com, that's P-L-U-S dot com, and use code PURSUIT at checkout for $5 off your subscription. Shopify's already taken the cash register online, helping millions sell billions around the world. But did you know that Shopify can do the same thing at your retail store? Give your point-of-sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify's point-of-sale is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. And with Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers inline and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns, from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. And get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's point-of-sale Go Mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash bourbon, all lowercase, and go to shopify.com slash bourbon to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash bourbon. I got another question for you. Let's see if we yeah. can sort of stir up a memory here. So when you were on the road and doing all these tastings early on, you know, having 200 people in the room yeah, and you had just said, you just said, you know, something that never happened. Is there a, a moment that you can remember that you thought, I can't believe that just happened? Whether it was somebody in the audience that did something, whether Booker said something. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. We were coming out of a tasting. Now, Booker always signed bottles after the tasting. And I don't care if it took an hour and a half. He would not leave until he signed every bottle. And we were leaving the tasting, and his pants fell down. <laughs> and he stood there, and he said, Kathleen, pull my pants up. I was like, Par pardon me? Pull my pants up. So I had to pull his pants up. So, yeah, that was, that was an extraordinary experience that... I never thought would ever have happened. Didn't know you were signing up for that when you got the job, huh? No, hell no. Um, and sometimes he get he would get caught on a tangent and telling stories. And we, when we were doing the tastings, I would do the other brands, and he would always speak about Booker's, and then he would get into his stories. And if while I was talking, I said anything that he thought wasn't true. Or if I tried to describe a taste too closely, he didn't believe in people telling you what you were tasting. He really felt like everybody had to experience it themselves. But 
you know, I'm on the other side where I'm like, you know what? Some people need the help. Sometimes I need that little nudge to say, what you're smelling is this. He would stop in the middle. And I remember doing my, like my second tasting and we were in San Francisco and it was a filled room and there was media there. And I said something like, now Basil Hayden's has this spicy, almost minty flavor. And he said, now Kathleen, right into the mic. Now Kathleen, you know that isn't true. I said, okay. And he goes, there is no mint in Basil Hayden's. So I stand corrected. There's, there's no mint in Basil Hayden's. And then, you know, I, it was, that was one of the nights I cried as well. It was, uh, I, I was like, holy shit. How do you, how do you come out of that one? Yeah, especially was, if it's your second one, that's like, it's your second one. And I yeah. was like, not prepared to be. But the other thing that I think um, maybe I haven't spoken about was his true honesty, his true honesty in everything he did. If somebody stood up and said something that wasn't true, he would call them out. And I don't care if it was the CEO of our company, if he said Jacob Beam uh, distilled Jim Beam and put it in bottles, he would say, now, you know, that's not true because Jacob Beam was making whiskey and putting it in barrels and, and shipping it. That was the only reason why it was in barrels. It wasn't in barrels because people recognized that aging worked back in 1795. It was be for purposes of shipping. Usually they drank the clear spirit. So um, he was very, very, and even his son is this to this day, he will not lie. And he does not appreciate people who stretch the truth. And little Fred is very much like that too. I'm sure you've spent a lot of time on the beer podcast with him and he's probably shared that very straight and narrow bent of the way that he's approaching little book and how he is blending flavors together and how he's going to be absolutely forthright on everything that goes into that little book. So I think uh, that is part of the wonderful qualities of this family that despite us not being family owned is very much part of our, our DNA. Yeah. And, and it works with the Japanese. The Japanese are the same way. They honor honesty. They honor family. And we couldn't have been more fortunate to be purchased by a group of people that honor legacy. The same way Shinjiro Tori created their, you know, Japanese whiskey. They support Big Fred and Little Fred, and how they are building the future for what bourbon would be. They support Bill Samuels and Rob Samuels and what they want for whiskey, which is different than what Beams want, uh, which is why we work together in a portfolio. We would not work together if we were both trying to make the same thing. So I also kind of want to take it back to the tasting inside of things. You know, I'm assuming you didn't get into this thinking like, oh, I love whiskey. Like, let me start doing it. It's probably, you know, you, you had to, you had to kind of grow and, and doing those things of learning the learning how to make whiskey and, and learning how to taste it and stuff like that. How did you learn to sit there and pull those flavors out? And I guess even the bigger question is, is when you were doing some of those first tastings and you were leading people through the portfolio, were you confident in what you were saying? Or was it like, man, we're just going to fake it till we make it? Yeah, no, you know, spending time down at the distillery and learning how the spirit is made and understanding the different flavors as you go, 
There's nothing that makes aged whiskey taste better than drinking White Dog. That will make you love finished whiskey much faster. <laughs> it's kind of so, like a, yeah, that's a fight or flight sort of thing. You'll find out yeah, right like, away. All right. I mean, I don't dislike White Dog. It tastes like beautiful bread, but it has a bite to it that I do not enjoy. And when it is tempered with wood, I like it. And what I fell in love with first was the aromas. I love the aroma of Knob Creek. I love the aroma of Booker's when it's cut with a bit of water. So I, it took time. It took a lot of time. And I will be honest with you, I went through a lot of trainings with Booker. I went through a lot of trainings with people in our QC lab so I can understand flavors. I, I got to the point where I, and even to this day, I can pick out Jack Daniels based on the banana aroma blind. You can put 10 whiskeys in front of me and I will find you the Jack Daniels. I'll find you the Knob Creek and I'll probably find you the Maker's Mark and the, the Jim Beam. Um, the Booker's I can find just by look because it, it's just that deeper color. And it also sometimes has some of the mare's tail, you know, the, the char that flows through that looks like the horse's tail. Um, I've never so, heard it called that before. We just call them floaters. Yeah, no, no, mare's tail. Um, but it's usually very, very light. And it's just like a little bit of char. So it flows beautifully. It's not like the floaters that you would get from cork. It is true char that it's just been through the filtered through the mesh screen. But I digress. So it took a while. And uh, did I feel confident? Yeah, I didn't feel very confident on Basil Hayden's as I was using the um, mint analogy which was of course written by our PR agency. They're like, oh, you've got to, you've got to tell them what flavors you're tasting. But Booker was right. There really isn't mint. But how do you explain spicy? People need something to help them. So what I did in those early days is I brought these little tiny Tupperware containers and I put vanilla in them. I put clove, I put char. I, I actually put mint and I think I put um, allspice. And so I would allow people to first nose the different jars and then pick up the whiskey because 80% of your taste is driven by your sense of smell. So if you're able to, in your mind, start to identify flavors, then you can, you're better at how you're going to be able to mix a cocktail and how you're going to be better able to determine how much water you want to add to open it up or, or things along those lines. And that helped me. It helped me to start to pick out flavors. Now, I, I, I really truly feel confident that if I sat in a room with like four different whiskeys and if I knew, I mean, I could pick out a rye. I can pick out a bourbon. I actually had the guy, the head of production in the 90s, bet me $5 that I couldn't tell the difference between a scotch and a bourbon. And I'm like, uh, you want to raise that? Come on. Yeah, I was like, that's, that's almost uh, peanuts for I mean, you. That's like, uh, that's a gimme. And I, I couldn't believe he, I'm like, that's very sad that you're actually. <laughs> On the production he, line asking me. The yeah, sort of it, thing. Telling, yeah, telling me that you're going to bet me that because uh, you apparently don't know the difference. But uh, so I, I would say that it was, it was a long process. I do have my favorite whiskey now. I do uh, love Knob Creek Old Fashions. That's what I drink. Um, when I'm sipping and I'm home in my jammies, I'll drink Booker's. But I like Booker's with just a touch of water, which is why I have to be in my jammies. I'm not going to go out 
and drink bookers at a bar. It's just, um, well, I love it that way because I truly do appreciate the flavor. I want that flavor. I want that intensity. It is that warmth that goes down your throat and up your nose. And it's jammy. Often, it's jammy kind of bourbon, right? That's what it is. It's it is true comfort. I am not kidding you. It is the comfort of sitting in my chair, watching bad TV or, you know, as for me, like it's HDTV. I like to watch people fixing up houses and I sip bookers and I Everybody decide. Everybody needs a little well, love it or list it sort of thing. Yeah. 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 Oh my God. Then I can, I can think about what I'm going to do to my house. But I, I love the bookers for sipping in home. I have the old fashioned when I'm out. If I want a julep, I always do Basil Hayden. And bakers, I will sip straight if I can find it out. It's hard to find it in accounts. So I have a bottle here once in a while. But again, it's in that difficult spot that I hope we can find a place for it. And I hope we can start to look at specific places where that barrel comes from so we can start to talk about flavor differences so people can say, you know what, I really want to try a middle-of-the-rack-house bakers versus a top-of-the-rack-house bakers. That would be interesting to me because those flavors are very, very different, like an island scotch versus a highland scotch. One is super intense, inky, dark, and one is just right. Yeah. And there are moments for both of those. For sure. So we had talked a little bit about growing and looking at these brands in the very early 90s and really the kind of blood, sweat, and tears you had to put into it. Were you still taking care of these brands at the turn of the century when we're talking about the year 2000, a little bit after that and, yes. and sort of how did the marketing strategy sort of change once you start getting into a little bit more of like a, a, a digital revolution, if you will. So at the turn of the century, that's when we created distillers masterpiece. That's when we started to see the, the bourbon category was starting to come back. Knob Creek was, was on fire. Basil Hayden's was following Booker's was holding steady. We were selling what we had. And we came out with an 18-year-old and a 21-year-old that were finished. So that was our first foray at, at, at looking at playing a bit with bourbon. At that point, we started to break Knob Creek out separately from the rest of the small batch because it, it did have a very strong consumer following. So we started to do um, promotions with it that were separate. Um, we started to bring Fred No on in, out into the marketplace. So Booker stopped traveling around 1999, and we started the Fred No Live tour. And we had T-shirts made with you know the, all the markets that he went to, and Fred would sign bottles. And let me just tell you, Fred lived his best life on the on the when he was out in the field in the early 2000s. I mean, I'd have to call ahead of time and say, Fred needs to be back by 1 a.m. <laughs> Nothing good happens after 1 a.m. Please do not have him out after 1 a.m. He has a media interview tomorrow morning. And uh, so he he really then took it to the next level. By 2004, I had moved out of the business, and that's when they put it into a – instead of like a small seed brand team, it went to a larger brand team. And they started to build broader strategies that – now today include a very strong, robust social presence and, you know, tie-ins with Big Green Egg and really bring to life that barbecue idea for Knob Creek and hospitality for Bas uh, Basil Hayden's. So I, I've seen these brands turn into their own people. They have their own personalities. They have their own 
trajectories of success. And, and I'm very proud to see that. I love what some of the new folks have done for the packaging. Like I said, I'm, I was, I was sad to see our big nine-year-old and our newsprint go on Knob Creek, but the wavy glass is the truth of what that brand was. So they did the right thing. Making Basil Hayden stand out without the, the, the horrible bib that kept ripping on the shelf, they've, they've solved that. They've made it beautiful. And the Booker's bottle, I appreciate that that hasn't changed. Because as we talked about before with Booker, it was always about what's inside. It was not what was on the outside. And he would not be pleased if they turned this into a fancy pants bottle. That's just not who he was. And I don't think he'd be pleased if any of the bottles got crazy fancy. Fred and little Fred are the keeper of Booker's intentions. And so I love that our company recognizes their authority on these whiskeys. We're owned by Suntory, but Suntory demands that we honor the families and that we honor the legacies. I cannot thank them enough for doing the right thing. We have the first family of bourbon. There is for me, no lineage that is as strong and is, is truly, they live and breathe and die, the bourbon industry. They have done what they can do to build this industry up, to make it an iconic American industry. And I love that that is recognized and honored. It isn't a play thing. They aren't in it for the moment. They are in it forever. That's why I'm so proud to be part of this. That's awesome. It's a fantastic way to wrap up because even your legacy lives on as being inducted into the Bourbon Hall of Fame as well. I mean, it's a, it's a truly an honor and it's truly an honor for us to, to also have you on the show. But before we kind of close it out, I also want to give you one last plug. So you are also the director of senior director of the Premium Seed Brands today. So if people are wanting to know like what are the next things that they should be looking at, What's, what, should, what should we be paying attention to? Oh, well, I, I'd love everybody to, to look at a new brand that is just like Small Batch. Um, this is my newest charge. It's called Sipsmith Gin. It is a small boutique gin that was created out of London by three founders who lobbied Parliament to get the law changed so that they could distill in London because it was illegal to distill in London for the past 200 years. So back in 2015, they, they created their own gin brand. 2017, it came to the U.S., and now it's in a, my hands, and I'm going to hopefully honor their legacy, like I have done with the small batch for Sipsmith, and get people to love this brand one bottle at a time. Not trying to be overly commercial, try to just seek to help people understand what makes a gin special, what makes this gin special. And maybe put some unique marketing in place for that. So I'll, I'll send you a few fun ads that I think uh, you would love. Awesome. Even though they're, they're, not, they're not bourbon, but they're still fun. And hey. I think you would find a unique way to look at business. I still love a gimlet. So it works out yeah, great. Yeah, that's right. Who doesn't, right? Yeah. <laughs> cool side, I, I think I like a, a, a just nice, cool spritz drink. Yeah. So. Cool. Well, Kathleen, thank you so much for coming on thank the show today you. and sharing your story and your history and all those you know, great interactions that you've had with the nose over the years. It's Thanks. truly an honor to be able to capture your story today as well. If people want to know more about you or get connected with you, is there any way that they should be able to do that? 
I think you can find me on LinkedIn. In fact, I know you can find me on LinkedIn. So please just go on there, look, search Kathleen Benedetto, And I am the only one with Bourbon Hall of Fame. So uh, you should be able to find me. And I will definitely connect with you. I'm not as uh, into social as I should be. Um, but you can also find me on Twitter at K-D-I-B-E-N-E-D. And on Instagram at K-D-I-B-E-N-E-D. Just uh, six letters, I believe. Seven. There we go. Well, awesome. Thank you again, Kathleen, for coming on. Cheers, everybody. Make sure you follow her. Follow us wherever you get all your socials and your podcast. Share it with a friend. Leave a review, whatever it takes. But with that, cheers, everyone. We'll see you next week.